is Bloomberg Surveillance. The lows have been seen in the commodity markets generally, whether it's in the soft, whether it's in the grains, whether it's in crude oil. Has the Fed laid out a new rationale for running monetary policy other than looking at the labor market and looking at the inflation numbers? We think that people have leapfrogged what is reasonable into excessive worry. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning, everyone. Bloomberg Surveillance. We'll talk equities in this hour with David Wilson. We do that after a two-day extravaganza of international economics. We'll talk oil, hydrocarbons, Citigroup joining us on the mystery known as Nat Gas. Our Forex brief this morning, that has to do with Mr. Draghi, brought to you by Interactive Brokers, winner of FX Week's 2015 award for the best retail Forex trading platform. Visit IB at IBKR.com. Slash 4X. The Euro 111.21 weaker. I'm gasping over the volatility in the Euro in the last 48 hours. Euro 111.21 weaker this morning. Yen weaker. 113.60. That's moved fair amount. 111.112.113.59. Had a 114 handle with a drama yesterday. As Michael McKee mentioned earlier, dollar churning certainly not stronger. 96.47 is measured. By DXY, I mentioned earlier, ruble up 15%, 1.5, 15 big figures. That's what Bob Singe would say, 15 big figures. From the bottom, 69.90, 80 to 69.90 on dollar ruble. And let's look at Canada as well, 132.96 uh, on uh, the loonie. David Wilson is here because he watched Charlie Rose, which will be on today. Charlie Rosen, he has a special guest from Yahoo. That would be Marissa Meyer, the yes. chief executive. What's Absolutely. up? Yahoo shares are up uh, about 1%. Meyer uh, said on the Charlie Rose show that she hopes to maintain her job even if the web portal changes hands. Yahoo is considering a sale and breakup along with other options. Williams companies up 3%. The natural gas pipeline owner's affiliate Williams Partners agreed to work on a deep water project off the Louisiana coast. Williams Partners signed an agreement with Royal Dutch Shell in the Nexen unit of China's Sinook. Now, Williams fell 11.5% yesterday after a dispute with would-be buyer Energy Transfer Equity Service over uh, financing. Now, Ulta Salon Cosmetics and Fragrance up 13%. The beauty shop owner's fiscal fourth quarter earnings and sales beat analyst average estimates in a Bloomberg survey. Ulta's first quarter forecast surpassed projections as well. Some analyst calls of note, Nantech up 4.5%. The security software maker was raised the equivalent of buy from hold at RBC Capital Markets. Hertz Global Holdings up 10%. The car rental company was raised the equivalent of buy from sell at Morgan Stanley. Data compiled by Bloomberg shows Morgan Stanley was the only firm to recommend selling the stock. Noble Corp, on the other hand, down 3%. The oil driller was cut to sell or an equivalent at Goldman Sachs and Piper Jaffray. And speaking of Goldman, uh, they raised ratings on a couple of energy producers to buy from neutral. One of them, Carrizo Oil and Gas, ticker on that one, CRZO. The stock's up 5.5%. And Oasis Petroleum, uh, ticker OAS, up 4%. Finisar, ticker FNSR, up 14.5%. The fiber optic equipment maker's profit forecast for the fiscal fourth quarter topped estimates. Revenue may also be higher than analysts expected. And one more for you, Tom. Genesco, ticker GCO, down 8.5%. Mm. The footwear maker's 
uh, fourth quarter <clears throat> earnings and revenue came up short of analyst estimates and uh, Genesco's profit forecast for this year was also a disappointment. Yeah, David Wilson, thank you so much. If you are lucky, you get to put together a team including Christopher Main, Eric Lee, Akash Doshi, Adriana Natsvuli Hugeson, our guest, Anthony Yuen, and they have the privilege of working with one Edward L. Morse and Seth Kleiman. This would be Citigroup Commodities, Citigroup Hydrocarbons, and Dr. Yuen out of Penn joins us right now. Anthony, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. What is the number one thing you will read about and think about this weekend in oil and gas? What's the mystery for you right now? The mystery right now is uh, where storage and production would be for oil side. Because we are looking at a situation where you can, cannot really observe production, but you can observe through uh, storage levels. And there's been a lot of talk about, you know, speculation about where production is, whatnot. Uh, it's all talk, and actual data won't see it for, you know, a couple of months at least. So storage is actually really, you know, thinking about where we are heading. Is your tendency that we are overestimating our productive capacity? Um, in fact, right now, I think it's the kind of mix right now. Historically, people kind of overestimate the productive capacity, but then now almost people are trying to look for, you know, all sorts of declines here and there and almost trying to think about there might be more limitation to where things could be. What's, um, what's the difference? We, we talk so much about oil. What's the difference between oil and gas in terms of what we can know about it and when? Uh, I'm thinking when you, when you talk about storage and we don't really know, you know, all the details. Uh, uh, how, how do we think about natural gas? I think we think about natural gas is kind of like if you think about kind of quant trading of energy in that um, there are a lot of data available. Um, and so there's an arms race within the sector about how to model uh, production, demand, and also storage. And what that means is that we pay attention, a lot of attention, to where storage would be because the ultimate storage market within commodities is actually natural gas because there, there's only effectively one way to storage uh, to store gas, which is in a actual gas field rather than, for example, oil or metals, which is much easier to find alternative forms of uh, storage locations. And that storage constraint on the gas side really dictates where prices could be. And this is where, you know, not only uh, people know a lot of the data about the fundamentals because it's high, very high frequency, but going forward, what's your view on, let's say, oil and gas and whatnot could right. be dictated where the production and storage would be? Mike, I'm putting a net gas chart out with the trend, uh, Dr. Yuan, from 2008 on downward. We're one standard deviation through the trend heading towards two. Do you just assume natural gas is in free fall and it's the buy of a lifetime, 20 cents below here? Um, I think that... On natural gas, uh, a lot of things is driven by fundamentals in the following sense, because of the storage constraint. And so, therefore, even though you see gas prices falling, 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 but then we are um, at a point where it's just not profitable to drill new wells. And it looks like we might be coming up to a very shortage situation on the production side, especially 2017. And so, therefore, right now, if one is not a very short-term trader, 
then natural gas is something that one should be looking at very closely. What uh, what do you look at when you look at the numbers? I look at basically if there are two numbers to look at. Very simple. Uh, if there are two numbers to look at, one is the weekly storage number, basically gauging whether the, the market is in severe oversupply or undersupply. But the second number, which is in very important, is actually something called the end of October storage numbers. Because if that, num if that projected number is too high, then the market should sell gas because there's too much gas available and you have to force the price down to either rational, rationalize the uh, supply or uh, bring up demand. But then if the storage number at the end of October is too low, then you want to raise your price so that you motivate a little more supply but also kill off demand. And these days the market has been looking at whether the end of October storage would be breaking 4,000 billion cubic feet in storage either below or above. Is that, uh, is that how much we need? Um, that's how much we need in general. Over the last few years, that's what the market targets. And one additional thing what's uh, happening in 2017 is that we might get to a so-called comfortable level of storage by the end of this October. But then next year, because of an expected production shortfall versus expectation, so therefore, we might see a very low storage number next year. <clears throat> so that should right. boost prices next year. But in 30 seconds here, and we'll have you back, Dr. Yuan, can you reaffirm Edward Morse's caution about a catharsis or a clearing of oil markets at a much lower price? Um, sure. So in the short term, because of the physical uh, constraints on the storage side and whatnot and oversupply environment, so therefore, we're still um, sort of more cautious in the very short term within the, this quarter and next quarter before a balancing of the market could happen later this year uh, mm -hmm. before, as well as Q1 next yeah. year. Uh, wonderful. Let's have a McAnthony UN with us, uh, with Citigroup working with Edward Morse and Seth Kleinman as well. We'll come back and talk about uh, commodities and his good work. He's, this is, he does minutiae work on rig count, folks. When you hear people like me in the media go, and the rig count today went down, uh, it is it is sophomoric compared to how the pros parse what rigs are doing. Futures up 19, down futures up 153. The Euro, 111.17. Time now to check in with Michael Barr and get the latest world and national headlines. Michael. Mike, Tom, thank you very much. Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump announced he is getting the endorsement from one-time rival Ben Carson. Trump made the announcement during last night's debate in Miami. Carson will make it official this morning. Funeral services take place today for former First Lady Nancy Reagan. The guest list will include hundreds of friends from Hollywood and Washington. Four of the five living first ladies and relatives of every president dating to John Kennedy will attend the services at the Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California. Time is running out for negotiations between New Jersey Transit and its rail workers' unions. A Sunday morning strike deadline has been set by the union. Global News 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike, Tom? Michael Barr, thanks so much. Oil, 38.57 a barrel, up 72 cents. It's within the vicinity of an American price of $40 a barrel. Brent, 40.65. 
That's about a, a $2 difference. With Anthony Yuen of Citigroup, this is Bloomberg Surveillance. Market Drivers brought to you by Mercedes-Benz. The This month, your Mercedes-Benz Tri-State Dealers welcome spring with a limited time offers on selected models. Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by Interactive Brokers and CME Group. If you're looking for global futures contracts with low trading costs, look no further. Interactive Brokers is the industry leader. Learn more at interactivebrokers.com slash CME Group. U.S. stock index futures are higher this morning, and indication stocks will trim their first weekly drop in four. And this is investors reassess stimulus measures in Europe. We check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. S&P E-mini futures up about 18 points. Dow E-mini futures up 139. NASDAQ E-mini futures up 46. The DAX in Germany is up 3.3%. Ten-year Treasury, little change. Yield 1.93%. Yield on the two-year, 0.94%. NYMEX crude oil up 2% or 74 cents to 38.58 a barrel. COMEX gold is down 4 tenths percent or $5 to 12.67.90 an ounce. The euro $1.1122 and the yen 113.61. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, thanks so much. Any number of ways to go with Anthony Yuen of Citigroup as we look at hydrocarbons, energy, net gas in general. Anthony, your colleagues in crime note that Peru kept their policy rate at four and a quarter percent. This is Citigroup Economics uh, saying it was a bit of a surprise to the markets. Is this the basic commodity turnaround play? Are things so interdependent that if we finally find bottom and we have a commodity turnaround, as you alluded to uh, minutes ago, that it's basically the buy of a decade, or is it towards a a range-bound flatness when you look at all commodities, I think I think that in terms of buying, uh, there certainly is a, is a very good opportunity, but there are still a lot of risks that's embedded in the market. Because if we look at historically, um, the same factors that's driving two commodity markets, which is shale production and shale gas and sh- uh, shale oil, right now are driving the oil side. Um, it is possible that this year you might be seeing a potential disappointment because last year, remember exactly the same time, there was a lot of optimism about prices rising uh, on, you know, a potential balancing in the market, right? So then that did not come through last year. This year, the prospect of a balancing at the end of this year is much better. But then one also has to prepare for a potential risk on the downside. And so then the reason is, if you look at company guidance on production, especially in the U.S., um, they're looking for a you know production decline about at least on the EMP side might be about you know five to seven percent decline. But companies tend to overperform um, the guidance as well, particularly in production historically. So what if they do over um, overperform with the uh, the guidance, right? So um, yes. Right now, it is a very good – the end of the year balance looks very good. It's just that one will have to be mindful of the potential downside. What is the, the, the break-even point in natural gas? Um, how, far, how far would we be from that? 
Um, in fact, it should be somewhere around about $2.50 to about $3 uh, per MBTU. The reason is you are kind of looking at where the cost of production would be, including drilling and fracking, uh, in the U.S. Northeast, uh, in the Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia region, as well as down the Gulf Coast, such as the Louisiana's Hainesville Shale. And uh, how likely are we to get back to that? It, we're seeing uh, maybe the magic of low prices work in the oil industry. What about on the uh, gas side? Um, on the gas side, in fact, if you look at, we think that in 2017, um, because of the very low uh, prices of oil and gas right now in 2016, so companies are not investing uh, way under investing for production. And so in 2017, we might not see enough production growth in 17 when you have, you know, export to Mexico, export uh, via LNG of gas. And that's going to boost demand substantially, which requires much more production growth than what we are expecting well, looking at where the rig count would be. In the time we've got left with you, what's your terminal value on oil? What's your terminal value on that gas? Um, I think that for on the oil side, it is we're trying to find about where the cost decline look like. And so, therefore, it is possible for that uh, so-called long run price could be, you know, in the 50s or $60 range. Okay. And on the gas side, um, it could be, you know, somewhere around the $3. It could be $3. Really? You know, yep. It could so be you're a talking lower. a double. You're talking a double on that gas. That's right. Because if we think about um, – Right now, in terms of prices, where we are looking at uh, what is sufficient to motivate production, over the last few years, uh, high oil prices definitely helped production grow uh, because of something called associated gas production coming from oil wells. Because when one drill an oil well, some gas would come out, and some oil wells are more gas than others. And this associated gas production, we believe, was responsible for uh, as much as 40% of the production growth between 2011 and 2015 on the gas side. So, therefore, if you lose that, then you have to very much depend on uh, the U.S. Northeast, the progressive dollars Utica show. But there are also companies over there that are not in the best financial form. So even if prices were to rise to even two dollars or two in the low two dollar range, now I'm talking about dollars per MMBT right, on right, gas, right. then some of these companies may not even want to produce more because they do not have either yeah. financing or appetite. Okay. This has been wonderful. Anthony Yuen, thank you so much working with Edward Morse at Citigroup with a, a more granular view on Hydro. Mike, that was fascinating. There's some terminal values that are up there. Yeah. We, we're, we're not quite there yet. Mike um, and I have learned never to predict oil. No, oh, well, and not, not It's guess. like talking not to children. Not if there's a million quants out there with all kinds of formulas trying to figure yeah. it out. I'm not going to guess. That's fascinating. We predict that. Don't call me up for his rig count research. It's brilliant. And contact your Citigroup uh, associate, your branch of Citigroup. Maybe they'll have them laying around. Yeah, natural gas right now, uh, 1.825. Uh, yeah, a little bit of a lift off the. Yeah, it's, it's the gone weekly. off the last few days. Well, it, it, oddly, because it's gotten warmer. Well, there's, a, you know, it's undeniable. There's a commodity lift. And, excuse me, you see that with West Texas 
intermediate, 38.56, up 73 uh, cents, a little bit higher earlier, uh, in the vicinity, getting there, of $40 a barrel. We need to get the market open. It's Bloomberg Surveillance. The Bloomberg Ski Report brought to you by Land Rover. If it's in your nature to cast off the everyday and seek adventure, the Discovery Sport was built to help your search. Visit LandRoverTriState.com for special offers during the only adventure sales event, Land Rover, above and beyond. Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1200, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app at Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. And good morning. I'm Karen Moscow along with Tom Keene and Michael McKee. And the opening bell is brought to you by SEI. Imagine a global operating platform designed to deliver a differentiated and technologically rich investor experience. Find out how SEI can help you succeed at SEIC.com slash imagine. Stocks are higher at the open. The S&P 500 up six-tenths percent or 12 points to 2002. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is up half a percent or seven. Uh, 79 points to 17,074. The Nasdaq's up 1% or 48 points to 4710. 10-year Treasury, little change. Yield 1.93%. Yield on the two-year, 0.94%. NYMEX crude oil up 2.3% or 86 cents to 38.70 a barrel. COMEX gold is down 4 tenths percent or $5.70 to 12.66.90 an ounce. The euro, $1.1119 and the yen, 113.64. Tom and Mike. Karamaska, thank you very much. Well, those of you who uh, listen to this program regularly, and you know who you are, uh, know that we have spent a lot of time talking about productivity and why it is so low and uh, what the consequences for the economy and for uh, standards of living are. One of the questions that continually comes up is, are we mismeasuring productivity because we're in an age of uh, rapidly changing technology? Uh, Chad Severson is a professor at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business, and he's done an unusual thing. He's looked at the data, and uh, you find shocking in, only in, Chicago can do that in a, in a new in a new paper. The data do not support the idea that we are mismeasuring productivity. Yes, that seems to be the case in several different directions. Well, tell us about what you found. So uh, I looked at a few things. Um, first is uh, what you see across several, a couple dozen countries is the pattern is the same. So there was a productivity slowdown that happened right around 2004, and uh, there is no relationship between the size of the productivity slowdown in a country and how IT-intensive that country's economy is whether measured on the production side, which is, you know, what fraction of the economy is accounted for by production of uh, IT-related goods, or on the consumption side, so it's measured by, for example, broadband penetration. You, you just don't see a relationship between technology and the size of the productivity slowdown, which is exactly what you would expect if, if mismeasurement is causing the, the productivity slow, the measured productivity slowdown in that case. And then you can look at things a couple other ways, too. If you people have tried to go measure uh, in different settings, you know, how much, uh, the, uh, how much people view the 
benefits from from uh, information technologies, uh, things like basically trying to value what Facebook and Google and all that are worth to people. And even if you take the high end of those numbers, you can't explain anywhere near the amount right. of output that's been lost by the productivity slowdown. I mean, that's that's a useful thing to remember here. What we're trying to explain is about three trillion dollars a year of missing output. So if you're going to say, "Look, we're just productivity slowdown only because we're mismeasuring it," that's kind of the target you, right. you should have in mind. You, you, your work is first of all, we're thrilled to have you on, and and the the again looking at the data is to be kind of helpful. What's so powerful about your work, Professor, is you go back. I mean, Krosner was in Chicago in 1947 when John Kendrick did his study on electrification. And the bottom yeah. line is it's just history repeating itself, right? Yeah, that's right. So uh, if you look at what happened during the electrification, the portable power era, you see a strikingly similar uh, pattern in productivity growth. There was a slow period of about a quarter century. People were saying, well, we have these great new technologies, yeah. where's the productivity, then it sped up, then it slowed down again. Now we're waiting for that next speed-up. That has not happened yet. We're in that, we're in the, we've been in the slowdown since 2004. And this is similar to what happened with the adoption of electricity, but eventually we saw electricity really contribute to productivity gains. We, that's true. There was a second wave of productivity growth with electrification, uh, we're waiting for that with with IT and the technologies we have today. But as hopeful as some folks are that it's happened and we're just not measuring it, um, right. again, like I said, it's just when you take a closer look at the data, it does not seem to be there yet. We've had a lot of uh, discussions on this. Of course, it is the national question. And, Professor, if you're just joining us, uh, folks, this is an important discussion on productivity with all with Mario Draghi uh, yesterday. Chad Syverson at uh, Chicago Booth uh, with important research. Um, capital dynamics, labor dynamics, Dominic Constant at, at Deutsche Bank is adamant that investment is actually pretty good. It's just there's a wall of labor coming in, creating a lot of inefficiencies. Give us the dynamic right now, away from the IT analysis, of what capital and what labor are doing. Well, it's certainly true that, you know, if you invest more and you for a given size labor force, you should expect labor productivity to go up. And by a lot of metrics, uh, capital investment seems to have been lagging for several years. We seem to be behind on on uh, housing investment for perhaps obvious reasons, on public investment. There's just been maybe a lack of putting capital into place. Now we've got new workers coming into the economy or back into the labor force, sorry. All those things are going to tend to lean against productivity in, in the short run at least. Uh, but then again, you know, this slowdown started even before the, the crisis. So we're talking about not just short-run trends. We're talking about longer-run trends here that are operating at the same time. I, I, I look at productivity then, and, you know, in every textbook, and this is true at Chicago or any other school, there's this thing called total, total factor productivity. It's basically, folks, the, the noise off the right-hand side of the equation. How, how are we doing with our technological progress? How do you fold that in to this equal comparison of electrification and IT? Yeah, that's a great question. So basically, labor productivity comes from two things. One is capital investment, which we just talked about, and the second thing is total factor productivity. 
both of those have been slow during this labor productivity slowdown. So we were just mentioning that capital investment's been on the slow side, but it's not just that. Uh, total factor productivity, which is kind of, you know, for people to imagine what's going on, it's it's technological progress, for lack of a better term. You know, the more output you're going to get from the same amount of inputs, that is also slowed with similar timing to the labor productivity slowdown. So it seems that both of these things seem to be driving the slowdown. It was the expansion of total factor productivity in the, in the late 90s that got us the last productivity boost from 95 to 2004. The same thing happened with electrification. A lot of that was total factor productivity as well. Chad Severson is with us from the Chicago Boost School. We'll continue our conversation about yeah, let's do that. Um, productivity and uh, whether or not uh, our bosses are really measuring what Tom and I do uh, effectively. It, well, we know we're not productive. I mean, Michael Barr is the only reason productivity advances at Bloomberg Surveillance. Oh, I'm going to keep uh, the illusion going. Keep the illusion. <laughs> They're very good. That's very British of you. Michael Barr with a money illusion segue, segue there into productivity. Seriously, folks, productivity, what they heat, whether we heard it from Chairman Green, Span or Chad Syverson, the heat of mystery and analysis right now on this strange economic soup is like I've never seen it. The mystery of where are we with the nation's efficiency is really front and center. And the Dow likes to be efficient right now, up 160 points, 17,153 on the Dow. The VIX in a full stick, 17.09. Good news, risk on for the markets. Now let's check in with Mike Labar. Get the latest world and national headlines. Mike, Tom, thank you very much. Ben Carson made it official. The former Republican presidential candidate announced his support this morning for Donald Trump. There are two different Donald Trumps. There's the one you see on the stage, and there's the one who's very uh, cerebral, sits there and considers things very carefully. Carson says he has buried the hatchet with Trump. Funeral services will begin later today for former First Lady Nancy Reagan. Four of the five living First Ladies will attend the funeral at the Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California. About a 1,000 guests have been invited, including former President George W. Bush. It will be the first New Jersey transit strike in three decades if they do not come to an agreement soon. Union workers for one of the busiest commuter railroads have set an early Sunday deadline. A strike would strand tens of thousands of commuters in and out of Manhattan, New York. Some traffic experts say a work stoppage could cause 20-mile backups at the Lincoln and Holland Tunnels. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Michael Barr, that's so important. We've got to sum that up. Likelihood Monday morning. Oh, it's going to be bad because the New Jersey transit officials are saying they can only get four out of ten transit people who take okay. the, uh, the railways to, to get in and out on the buses. A cut to the chase, starting Sunday, Bloomberg Radio, for all of you in Bloomberg 1130 New York, and for that matter, around the nation that would like to follow this, an important uh, uh, moment for New Jersey. Look for that Monday morning, Bloomberg Surveillance. Bloomberg Surveillance brought to you by Land Rover. Adventure is yours for the taking. Visit LandRoverTriState.com for special lease and financing offers. Land Rover, above and beyond.
global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow, and this update is brought to you by CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. U.S. stocks are rising this morning, joining a global rally, poised to erase a weekly decline as investors reassess stimulus measures in Europe. And we check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. S&P 500 up 1 percent, up 19 points to 2009. Dow Jones Industrial Average up 1 percent, or 173 points to 17,168. And the Nasdaq's up 1.1 percent, or 50 points to 47.12. Ten-year Treasury down 3.30 seconds. The yield 1.94 percent. Yield on the two-year 0.94 percent. NYMEX crude oil up 2.6 percent, or 96 cents to 38.80 a barrel. COMEX gold is down. Three tenths percent or three dollars eighty cents to twelve sixty nine an ounce. The euro a dollar eleven thirty six. The yen one thirteen point five one. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, thanks so much. So much for that doom and gloom ending. We'll get to the markets here in about four minutes. Right now, we continue with Chad Severson of Booth Chicago. Thrilled to have him on. Uh, Professor Severson, with your good work on productivity, I go back fourteen years ago, a lifetime ago to Dale Jorgensen of Harvard in a compendium on productivity that I remember as being just brilliant. Stephen Older in it and Rogoff and the usual victims. Martin Neil Bailey, The New Economy, Postmortem or Second Wind. Let's move forward 14 years from 2002. Do we have a new economy now, or is that just from another time and place? Well, you know, that was written sort of at the peak of the IT drip, the Thank first you. Yes. productivity boom. And, you know, sure, that turned over the economy. It changed the way a lot of things are done. Uh, it had broad effects throughout the economy. And that's why productivity growth is, uh, grew so much at that period, just because those kind of technologies greatly affected so much of, of how things are done across many sectors. But whatever was going on then seems to have slowed, and we haven't figured out how to get that second kick yet. And that's sort of, uh, you know, this debate now is some people are saying, oh, yes, we have, and it's just not being measured. Um, my look at the data and some work that other people are doing is suggesting, no, you go drill a little deeper, and it does not seem to be just mismeasurement. It, it seems to be real. We're still waiting for that second wind. Is this the uh, Robert Gordon uh, conclusion that we have invented that which can really be significant in terms of uh, giving us additional productivity? Well, that's, it's tied to it. You know, I think Bob's stuff would sort of say there's one wind, we've had it, and we're done. Uh, I'm a little more on the optimistic side, in part because of what we saw with electrification, where we had two big waves with a gap between them. I'm, you know, so we know historically uh, technology doesn't just have to come once, give what it has, and we're done with it. It can come in waves. We've had one wave with IT. We're waiting on that second. Doesn't mean it has to happen, though, just because it did with electrification. But I think we know it can happen. Well, what is the most likely uh, outcome in your view? Uh, I, uh, deep down, I'm still an optimist. I mean, you look at the potential, 
uh, of some of these technologies, not just in, in tech, but biotech and, and other things that folks are working on. And you can imagine a world that is, that is very different that with a lot of economic progress, a lot of new income. Um, you know, I think, uh, so I can imagine that. Uh, and hey, I would love to see it in the data. And I would be happy to be told convincingly this is just mismeasurement now and we're really already there, but the simple fact is I just don't think that lines up with the evidence now. We're still waiting okay. at that a year away, five years away, ten years away. I couldn't tell you. I love it. It's Friedman, just the facts. What's the what's this, the Severson prescription? Forget about getting back to the boom productivity. What do we just do not, to not embarrass ourselves as a nation? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, one thing we can do, and there's there's some evidence actually that this is has gotten worse lately, is that you, you diffuse best practices and best technologies through the economy more quickly. So you know, you can imagine productivity goes comes from two sources. One is that we just figure out new and better ways to do things, but the other is that the speed at which people adopt these things. Yep grows and it looks there's some OECD has a really nice paper about a year ago suggesting that maybe the bleeding edge hasn't slowed down but what has slowed down is the diffusing the diffusion process yeah this is folks this is a huge theme of Jean-Claude Trichet I've spoke to him at length twice about the diffusing in America is superior to the diffusing through economy within a more fractious Europe are we becoming professor more like Europe uh uh, that's possible. I, I mean, the OECD sort of is broad-based. We seem to be slowing down. Like, like I said, the slowdown is happening here. It's happening in Europe. It could be uh, a very broad pattern. And the thing about this diffusion stuff is, in some sense, it's free. It's just the, the technology is there in that case. We just have to figure out how to get companies to adopt that stuff, to adopt those better technologies, those better practices, and encourage, you know, markets to sort of move those technologies through the economy. So you don't need to wait for that stunning uh, uh, invention. It's there. You just got to get people to start using it. And so, you know, that's in some sense, it's a little depressing that that yep. slowed down. But on the other hand, if that at least we have some hope of turning the dial on maybe a little more easily than trying to invent new and better ways. Yeah, Chad, well, Chad, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Congratulations on uh, some terrific historical and present research as well. Uh, Chad Severson is professor of economics, Booth School of Chicago. That was brilliant. Uh, to get to finish the week, um, it, it just it pays to look at charts. Um, we will now attempt to do that. Rush Fish is with uh, Bank of Montreal, BMO Capital Markets, and he joins us uh, right now. Rush, you are a believer in momentum. The doom and gloom crew had the momentum in January. What happened? Uh, we've actually seen a fairly significant uh, turnaround in momentum, and not just uh, short-term noise either. We're talking about uh, weekly and monthly charts, which give you a sense of what the next 6 to 12 months or longer look like for the whole commodity space, not just the uh, materials themselves, but also the stocks. What changed? Uh, uh, well, we actually saw some major shift in leadership occur uh, in mid-January when equity markets sold off, specifically when the S&P 500 sold off to retest its 
January low. At the time, we saw specific sectors such as consumer discretionary health care and financials uh, actually break down below their January lows, while at the same time, commodity stocks, uh, which have been huge laggards for roughly four years now, actually held above it, which was uh, the first indication that there was a change in leadership, meaning uh, while everyone seemed to be running around like their hair was on fire in mid-February, they still didn't want to sell their energy and material stocks, uh, and subsequently they have continued to provide leadership as the markets have rallied over the last few weeks. Which sectors have leadership? I mean, is hydrocarbon screen bottom? Uh, it's, frankly, it's, it's right across the whole spectrum. Uh, you've seen energy. Uh, I mean, I would say that natural gas is uh, certainly lagging somewhat, but uh, we're talking energy, we're talking base metals, precious metals, uh, as well as the agricultural stocks. What next? Uh, if you put in a bottom to the charts, tell us whether it's going to last. Yeah, great question. So uh, if you look back over the last 100 years or so, there's a very clear inverse relationship between commodities and equities. Really big picture stuff. Uh, when you're in a secular multi-year, multi-decade bull market for stocks, uh, you tend to be in a multi-year, multi-decade secular bear market for commodities, which is uh, certainly the case right now. So what I did was I went and looked back at the last secular bear market for commodities, the 80s and 90s, uh, to get a sense of what a cyclical bull market looked like for them. Uh, and at a top level, uh, using the CRB index, uh, cyclical bull markets within bigger secular bears tended to last about two years on average with 30, 32% gains in the CRB index. Uh, with actually more impressive gains underneath the, sur- underneath the surface right. in uh, different segments. For example, uh, energy stocks within those cyclical bull markets right. rallied uh, more than 100% during those cyclical bulls. Precious metals were up 65%, uh, and industrial metal- metals like copper. Okay. Them- Russ, thank you so much. Russ Vish with BMO Capital Markets. Greatly appreciate it uh, this morning. Mike, what a week it's been. I mean, I mean uh, yesterday was really something. Yeah, uh, we're going to be living with the the change in that uh, for a while. Um, Absolutely. We need to say thank you to all of our guests, particularly on international uh, economics, from everything we've seen across all of surveillance. uh, Olivier Blanchard and Catherine Mann and um, I thought Joachim Fels, Joachim Fels yesterday, Mike, was just absolutely superb with PIMCO. Dennis Gartman, uh, thank you so much for his appearance and, of course, our good guest today um, as well. All you need to know is shock and awe on the announcement. As I said yesterday on Twitter, like 4 p.m., to be kind, it was an odd day in the markets. It's not odd today. There's just simply a lift. There's a persistency higher. I want you on the watch for $40 a barrel American oil. Maybe we'll see that on Monday. We're produced by YUN. Ken Fellio, our global technical director of Bloomberg Surveillance.